Ultrasound Gel Podcast. Ultrasound Gel Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Ultrasound Gel Podcast. Mike Pratt's here, and today we have an especially incredible treat for you. This is another special edition podcast in collaboration with our colleagues from around the world. And this is coming to you from the Irish Association for Emergency Medicine Conference that took place in Dublin 2018. We are lucky enough through our many friends we have over there that we can host some of this fantastic discussion of evidence in point of care ultrasound. This is going to be a two part series. In this first part, we're gonna hear from people that are discussing the shock ed study that we have covered previously, as well as we're gonna throw on a little bonus on the erector spinae block for rib fractures. So if you like sick patients or you like doing regional anesthesia, there are a lot of gems thrown in here from voices all over the world, and these people are phenomenal. I also just wanna give a big thank you to my friends Andy Neal and Kean McDermott, who helped put this together. Andy Neal, if you don't know him, you should. He does the Archem podcast, where this audio was also featured along with a lot of other fantastic content. If you want, you can check that out at rcemlearning.co.uk. And Kean McDermott, just a all around great guy, helped put together the post for this podcast. Without further ado, enjoy. Okay, so my name is Andy Neal. I'm an emergency medicine trainee here in Ireland. My name is Nicholas Lim. I'm a EM resuscitation fellow in the Mara Emergency Department. My name is Rune Ventana. I work at Yale University in the Department of Emergency Medicine. My name is Ingo Berg. I work as an emergency physician in The Hague, the Netherlands. Hi, I'm Owen Conley. I'm an advanced paramedic in Tala in Dublin. Uh, hello, I'm Bob Hyde. I'm an emergency physician at Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. Hi, I'm Marcus Peck. I'm an intensivist from Surrey in England. Hi, my name is Kean McDermott. I'm an emergency physician in Dublin in Ireland. G'day, I'm Aidan Barron. I'm a paramedic researcher from Australia, currently in, Ar- in London, not Ireland. My name is David Linus. I am an anaesthetist and intensive care doctor in Belfast, Northern Ireland, and I run propophology.com. My name is Rachel Liu. I'm a consultant emergency physician from Yale University School of Medicine in the United States. Hi, I'm Catherine Nix. I'm an anaesthetist and intensivist in Limerick, Ireland. My name is Craig Bolger. I'm an emergency medicine physician at Ohio State University in the States. Wow, so that list of introductions didn't get any shorter the second time around. Um, I did forget to press record the first time around, so we're, we're hitting this all over again. So we have a huge number of people and expertise and multiple specialties here to discuss a number of interesting ultrasound papers and topics. We're going to kick things off talking about the Paul Atkinson paper from 2018, the shock ED study, which caused shock waves. <gasps> No, okay. Bum bum. Bum bum. Thank you, Aidan. Um, throughout the ultrasound community this year. So, so Aidan, do you want to give us a little bit of background on this if you're happy to? Sure thing. So, first up, I want to start by congratulating the authors because this was clearly quite a difficult study to put together. We've got six sites in North America and South Africa, emergency departments, who have come together and all agreed on a basic protocol and credentialing system for point-of-care ultrasound. And what they've done is they've designed a randomized control trial where they have patients who have been randomized to either receive point-of-care ultrasound or conventional care in terms of their initial management and diagnosis in the emergency department. Now, what's really interesting here is that this is obviously for shocked patients. So they've taken patients who had a uh, specific shock index less than, I believe it was, one 
or a systolic blood pressure less than 100. And they have enrolled them into um, this trial. Importantly, though, they have some very specific exclusion criteria, which were specifically excluded patients with a very high uh, suspicion of index for specific diseases. So if a patient had a very high pretest probability for a AAA or a pulmonary embolism, they were automatically excluded from that cohort. Now, what they've done is they've altogether recruited 273 patients across six years, sorry, across four years and six sites. Now, the trial was originally designed and powered for 400 patients with an alpha of 80, so they haven't quite reached that and they've terminated the trial early due to futility and a difficulty in recruiting the uh, desired number. However, though, still want to give kudos to the authors because overall they've really put in some serious effort. Now we'll go and discuss a few more specifics of the trial with our North American colleagues. Next voice you're going to hear is Craig Bulger from Ohio State University in North America. And she also does the Ultrasound Gel podcast. So that's a podcast looking primarily at the evidence supporting point of care ultrasound. So the studies they combine to evaluate in this uh, study were the RUSH and the ACEs exam. There are lots and lots of four-letter acronyms for ultrasound protocols, either for shock or for cardiac arrest or for lung ultrasound. Um, and the two that Cray mentions here, the RUSH and the ACEs, are two previously described protocols that are kind of combined. So they looked at cardiac windows for general activity and effusion, um, right ventricular size. They did a FAST exam, essentially looking for free fluid in the abdomen. They looked at the volume responsiveness of the IVC, um, the lung windows, as well as the aorta. I think there's a fairly reasonable ultrasound protocol. Does anyone want to chime in in terms of the appropriateness of their actual ultrasound protocol? Do they think that was too much? Do they think it was too little? Or do they think it was okay? I think what's really interesting in this study is that they commented that there was a discrepancy in terms of the patient population that they saw. So the South African patient population was very high in sepsis and the North American one was higher in dehydration. Now, what I find is quite interesting here is that they've done a general kind of rush ACEs protocol, but I would have been really interested to see them kind of dig deeper, especially in the sepsis cohort, into occult sources of sepsis, which didn't really happen. So I would have loved to have seen a bit more renal ultrasound, perhaps some GI ultrasound. They commented that occult sepsis was a large contributor of patients in this entire study. Yeah, lots and lots of it, wasn't there? Mostly patients for sepsis here. So really, I would have loved some more targeted point of care ultrasound used to actually dig into those occult sources of sepsis but otherwise i think it's a very reasonable protocol so let's go on uh, this is we know who the patients have they've excluded a few patients that we're maybe a wee bit worried about we'll come back to their protocol we think is reasonable they've recruited 280 patients what were our results they were aiming to detect a 10% mortality benefit or difference rather between the two cohorts and they weren't able to uh, detect a statistically significant difference between the cohort of POCUS versus conventional care does this mean we should throw this out, throw out ultrasound and I, I, stop using it straight away? You're, you're definitely <laughs> jumping the shark there. Okay. Well, yes, I, I definitely think that based off uh, one study with 273 patients, we should immediately abandon all point-of-care ultrasound use uh, effective tomorrow. So this, and from a statistical point of view, we have a negative trial. They didn't find a 10% benefit or anywhere near it. What, what, for starters, do you think, would you have ever expected to find a 10% benefit? So here's the thing. Um, I'm quite fortunate to have now read quite a few studies looking at pre-hospital ECG and the effect on mortality that exhibit exerts on patients. These studies have thousands of patients enrolled in order to prove that difference in mortality. And we're looking at 273 patients here, which didn't even reach the power calculation required for the trial. So really, is it statistically significant 
if we're asking, is this a negative trial or not? This is an inconclusive trial, which isn't able to give us an answer to the question that we were originally asking. So, as far as that goes, we really shouldn't be interpreting these results in any way. We should be looking at qualitative indices from this and taking lessons learned rather than actually interpreting a, a finite result of yes or no. The other thing that I wish that they had done was it was a good um, protocol to start with undifferentiated shock. But then once you have the um, delineations of shock pictures, um, it would have been nice to see them do a secondary analysis where they actually broke down the effectiveness of POCUS depending on what ended up being the ultimate diagnosis. So for instance, were they um, overall not having a benefit in uh, fluid resuscitation, um, but in the specific sepsis population, was there a fluid um, uh, giving benefit? Mm -hmm. um, which I think they do set as one of the limitations but I suppose this trial for me was always doomed to failure a wee bit as well because I think that you know point of care science is a diagnostic test and expecting a diagnostic test to have a benefit on mortality is not is, is a bit of a fallacy as the bottom line actually summarized quite well in their summary of this as well the other thing is they were they needed a sample of about 400 patients to have a I think it was your alpha of 10 was um, 10 percent wasn't it 10 percent yeah. and they were really nowhere near that let alone be part to see secondary outcome measures and, and um, delineate it any further. So I think it was always doomed to failure. I think that's what's sad about it, really, because I want to say a bit more. But. Based off what um, David just said, there are um, studies ongoing that address exactly what you uh, mentioned and also look at each kind of type of shock to see where there is benefit. Um, I'll also let you know on the inside that um, th the annals editor rejected all response letters. So um, everyone who read a response letter, including authors of those upcoming trials, were not able to have their response letter published. Wow. <laughs> Is that just a decision on yes. we don't understand was, why? Yeah, it's the decision editor's decision, and that's the decision he made. Okay, so that's the, the rough basics of the trial. We have a negative RCT. It's not the first RCT of ultrasound and shock. Jeff Klein and Alan Jones had one back in the early 2000s as well. It was done on that. It's not the first RCT that's out there that exists. Um, we haven't found RCT evidence of the use of point-of-care ultrasound in diagnosis and management of septic shock. So what does that mean for our practice or where should we be focusing our ultrasound on? Or maybe we can even talk about what particular POCUS findings in shock do you think are management and practice changing? So one of the things they did actually do uh, looking at their ultrasound protocol was they did scan down, look at that lung base. So they probably looked at Morrison's pouch and it would be interesting to know how many pyelonephrosis they picked up, for example. Any other comments you want to put in? Anyone wants the dying to get off their chest about the shocky D paper? Yeah, so I guess just to just to come in for one last kind of Rant. killing blow. <laughs> <laughs> Straight to the jugular. So POCUS is supposed to be used in a Bayesian context, which is you look at a pretest probability, you perform an exam, it has a exam char characteristics, a positive likelihood ratio, and that then affects your diagnostic decisional um, criteria and it, it gives you diagnostic clarity. If you exclude all the patients who have a high pretest probability of a disease in which you would use POCUS to confirm your diagnosis, then as has been so clearly said, you've made the, the, the diagnostic tool redundant. But not only that, we all know that anecdotally we have had incredible saves with POCUS, the, the AAA that we found, the PE that we found that we weren't expecting. Now, if we factor those into the equation, 
there was only 273 patients in this study. I'm very happy that one in 500 patients I will save as a random anecdotal finding with POCUS because that's still going to give me a number needed to treat of 500, which is still going to be low enough to be acceptable in my books considering the very, 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 very minuscule number needed to harm that POCUS exerts. So that being the case, it's a non-ionizing radiation. It's a Besides a, an opportunity cost, it's essentially a non-harmful diagnostic intervention. If this saves one in 500 patients for me, that's still acceptable to my practice. It's very hard to study that, but yep, it still stands. So everybody's happy. The Shock ED study perhaps is presented as a study showing no benefit to POCUS. That's not shifting our use of POCUS as a very POCUS-savvy and POCUS-friendly group. Yeah, we're all going to keep doing it, apart from Nick, who's selling his machines. Next up, we're going to talk a little bit about ultrasound. Now I'm a bit of an ultrasound fan um, and it's the joys of being editor of this thing is that you get to choose what segments go in. Um, I teach in a few ultrasound courses and there's a lot of these guys who are really passionate at talking about the new techniques and the new papers and all that. So this is one of those sessions from a meeting we had in Dublin. There's a lot of big names in the point of care ultrasound world here that you'll hear throughout the podcast and I'll try and um, pop in their names whenever they appear so you've got an idea of who's talking. This is definitely going to be on the more the cutting edge, the bleeding edge of things. I'm not expecting you to go out and take this and start using it tomorrow in your department though some people are it's more to give you an idea of alternative options that are out there okay so if you would imagine 10 years ago that a fascia iliaca block was a routine thing done by um, throughout the emergency department was becoming part of a quality marker and um, for your hip fracture care that would have been very unusual um, the standard at the minute for rib fractures is probably thoracic epidurals uh, it's a fairly niche and a difficult thing to, to place as you'll hear in the podcast but these guys are going to be talking about a technique that might well be the new fascia iliaca block for the chest Enjoy. And the first voice you're going to hear is Nick Lim, who's a friend of mine. He's an Irish emergency medicine trainee and an intensive care trainee. He has taught me an awful lot about bedside ultrasound. So over to Nick. I'm going to talk about this paper that I saw, uh, I read in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine that was published in uh, December 2017. So the title of the paper is Successful Emergency Pain Control for Posterior Rib Fractures with Ultrasound-Guided Erector Spiny Plane Block. So this is a publication by uh, Josh Luftig uh, and a couple of other names there, including also Andrew Ruth. Herring, Aaron Negdev, uh, Daniel Mantuani as well. Um, and it's a series of case reports and um, of uh, the use of the erector spinae plane block to manage uh, rib fractures. The rib fractures, rib fractures are very... Uh, Problematic. I think the term they use is vexatious. Vexatious, yes, that's right. Vexatious <sighs> issue to uh, address in the emergency department. And, uh, you know, you often expend your entire modality, your entire arsenal of uh, analgesia on this particular patient, and they are still in pain. Um, so this, uh, this has changed my practice in the last uh, 10 months. So uh, what they have uh, suggested is a plane block just under the erector spinae uh, muscle. Uh, it's uh, um, over-targeting the transverse process, 3 centimeters lateral on the affected side, and eject injecting um, local anesthetic, uh, so bupivacaine, levobupivacaine, or ropivacaine, what, what you have available uh, in that particular plane to effect analgesia for posterior rib fractures, but also to cover analgesia on the anterior uh, side of the chest. Next voice is Rainier Van Tonder from Yale. 
Yes, I, Renieria. Yeah, I love these uh, regional blocks. Um, I think it's very promising. Um, I, the Erector Spinus block, I've not used often, but we use the uh, Charadius Anterior block um, yeah, very often, and it provides excellent pain relief. Are you uh, able, is anybody able to give me a summary of what the difference between the Charadius Anterior and the Erector Spiny block is? Why would you do one over another? Um, so in this paper, uh, they've postulated that uh, the serratus anterior plane block um, is uh, it covers anterior uh, only anterior rib fractures. Uh, doesn't really cover the posterior rib fractures very well. Okay. Uh, whereas with the erector spinae plane, you hit the, both the dorsal and ventral rami, uh, and you will actually get effective analgesia on the posterior side, but also on the anterior side as well. Uh, in my in my experience. So I think there's two patient populations where there this is. Uh, practice changing. Um, one is the elderly patient population where you really want to avoid over sedation. They're already at higher risk for mortality from two isolated rib fractures without any trauma um, outside of that. By having two rib fractures alone, they have an increased mortality rate. And then we add opioids on that and increased risk of aspiration, increased risk of atelectasis by decreased respiratory drive from the opioids. And so this is game changing for that patient population where we really are doing less harm um, by giving opioids and by aggressive pain management, which should theoretically improve their respiratory to status and their pulmonary toilet, we actually probably do more harm. And can I ask a little question? So the, probably the current standard in the UK, certainly comes from the emergency department, you've got multiple rib fractures, ring the knee to this, get them to do a thoracic epidural. So that would be probably a reasonable comparator, certainly from our point of view in the emergency department. We have a few anaesthetists here, and I would love to hear their comment on epidurals versus plane blocks if they have any experience with can, such. Can, can I come in on that? Now, Marcus Peck, who works in anaesthetics and intensive care in England, he also looks after the FICE course um, for the intensive care training. Um, I work in a hospital that has embraced regional analgesia really, really well. And we have a fantastic system where these guys come in, they get given they get given a usually a paravertebral block but in, increasingly erector spiny uh, blocks and they are fantastic and they fly through the elderly like you said the you know people who would have really suffered uh, just get really comfortable and they come to a high dependency environment for a couple of days and they don't get pneumonia and they get better and they go home it's really fantastic so I, I really recommend this if we can bring that forward to ED where I work better. I'd love that is the thoracic epidural dying a death Catherine Nix, who works in anaesthetics and intensive care in Limerick in Ireland. Um, I think uh, it is, to, to um, answer your question, um, thoracic epidurals are quite interesting. When I visited the uh, Dartmouth Centre, Brian Seitz's uh, centre, about three years ago, he actually was using fluoroscopy in his centre to make sure the thoracic epidural was correctly placed. And the reason he told me he was doing this, and he had a separate block area so it didn't impact on surgical time, was because he found in his training centre where he's auditing his outcomes that 20% of his thoracic epidurals didn't work. And this is in a centre where, you know, the good training Thoracic epidurals are hard, I think all the anaesthetists here will concur with that. And also, paravertebral blocks can be dangerous. So I did an erector spinae block the other day because I've done a regional fellowship and I'm ashamed to say I'd never done one before. So I got out the YouTube videos and said, I'm coming to this podcast, I better know what I'm talking about. And I was surprised, actually, at how safe it is. You're not going, you know, past um, or 
you're, you're not going near dangerous structures in the back. I, I would just say, I think this block, when the practitioner knows what they're doing, is a much safer block than a paravertebral and a much more likely to succeed block uh, or has a higher uh, success rate than a thoracic epidural. Kian McDermott, who does emergency medicine, a lot of point of care ultrasound in Dublin. I think the fact that we're using compartment blocks, plain blocks, have completely revolutionized and democratized who does these blocks. So it doesn't have to be the domain of a pain, uh, pain-trained person. It can be done safely in ED. Fasciliacic compartment block is another one that's eminently So that's really what I want to jump off on is the fasciliacic block has been quite embraced, certainly amongst the UK and Ireland it seems to be. Is this a big step up training-wise, Nick? Um, I don't think it's a big step up training-wise. In fact, I think it's actually easier to teach than a fascia iliaca block because you're looking at nerve artery uh, vein Y fronts on your fascia iliaca block. You're going lateral to that. You know, you have to isolate the the fascial plane. Uh, you know, have to do hydrodissection properly. Whereas with uh, fascia iliaca, uh, sorry. Uh, erectospinae plane block, you're targeting the transverse process as long as you can identify the transverse process uh, and that's going from lateral to medial and then once you see the change to the uh, uh, the transverse process, uh, you just target the needle onto the top of the transverse process, injecting local anaesthetic, allowing you visualize the spread of local anaesthetic in that plane, all the while visualizing the, um, the pleura uh, you know, looking for vessels um, and you're avoiding all of that quite simply in this plane. So to give a brief summary of this here, the erector spiny block is an alternative method of providing good and reasonably long-acting analgesia for rib fracture patients or chest trauma patients within the emergency department. Previously, that's probably been a lot of opiates and maybe a referral for a thoracic epidural. So it's interesting to hear that even from the anaesthetic side of you, um, the, the needle might be tilting a little bit more towards this block and a little bit away from the thoracic epidural. This is not something to go out and do tomorrow. I will put some links in the show notes um, to the NYSORA, the New York's of regional anesthesia post on how to do one of these i'll find some videos to throw them in feel free to have a look at it there probably will be more on this coming down the line um so it's worthwhile keeping an eye out for it well i hope you enjoyed that as much as i did fantastic stuff thanks again to all of my colleagues who contributed you're going to hear more from that same group in our next special edition out in a week or two As always, thanks for listening, and you can check out more about our podcast at ultrasoundgel.org or visit us on Facebook, talk to us on Twitter, where we would definitely love to hear from you. Until then, talk to you later. More pressure, more gel, more pressure, more gel, more pressure, more gel, more pressure, more gel.